0: Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much, uh, Mark, but th- this was a bit of an overkill, I think. <laughs> um, well, I'm delighted to be here, and I, I really want to thank uh, Jim, the World Affairs Council, for convening this uh, this meeting, and uh, Stephanie and Hunter and Laurie for sponsoring this, this meeting. I am delighted every time I have a chance to move outside the Beltway and be reminded that the U.S. is not just Washington, though Washington would like to believe sometimes or make us believe this is the case. So it's with tremendous pleasure that I I, I join you tonight, uh, tonight here. I'm also very thrilled to see that there are so many people here interested in refugees. Uh, during the Cold War, uh, refugees were uh, subject of interest because they were a sort of living symbol that one of the two systems was, was wrong. And since the end of the Cold War, the complexity of the conflicts uh, around the world have made refugees much more difficult to understand. It's usually for us more difficult to convey a little bit that there are still people uh, who flee uh, because of uh, persecution, because of human rights violation, because of general violence. And the first point, therefore, I want to make is refugees are people who don't move out of their home, out of their country, out of a desire to improve their condition. These are people who move not by choice but by obligation, to preserve their basic rights, in many cases just to preserve simply their their lives. And these are the people that the international community have asked us to uh, look after. And what I thought I would would do tonight is to explain to you a little bit what my agency is mandated to do by the international community, uh, how we try to accomplish uh, that responsibility, which are the main areas where we work, and perhaps What are some of the key challenges we face in in a world that is changing quickly? And I will conclude by um, uh, trying to show you how the relationship we have with the U.S. is crucial to our functioning and how basically the U.S. and the U.N. can have a very constructive, positive interaction that is beneficial to some of the most deprived people in the world. So this is what I would plan to go over very quickly and I would be delighted to, to address your, your questions. The, we are the only agency that is responsible for the application of a specific international instrument, which is the refugee convention. No other international legal instrument has been given a guardian as we have been given. And that gives us quite some power because it obliges the countries that signed that convention to cooperate with us. They signed in the convention that they would offer us full access to information, to discussion on how they manage their own uh, refugee uh, programs. So it's a pretty strong uh, position we, we are in. And the international community have asked us to do two things. One is to uh, ensure uh, what we call international protection, and I will qualify that quickly, for refugees. And two is to negotiate a durable solution, which is to try to, in our interaction with governments, make sure that refugees will remain refugees as little time as possible and that we find a permanent solution to their refugee status, that the, the refugee stamp be not stuck on their head for too long. What do we mean by international protection? Uh, it is basically the restoration of the rights, the ba- very basic rights that these people have lost. The most fundamental one is to guarantee that once refugees flee their country and arrive in another one, they will not be subject to deportation, to Uh, return against their will to the countries uh, where they were persecuted. There are different ways to do that, a whole range of action. Uh, The most logical one is to negotiate with governments, you know, with foreign ministries, with ministers of Interiors, conditions for access of these refugees and how we are going to help them deal with them but very often you have to uh, extend that negotiation at field level with personal interaction with border officials with police officers with local governors and therefore we have a lot of our staff who is assigned not in the capitals but in the deep field we're basically a border-based organization where it is our credibility with local officials that sometimes allow you to negotiate things that may be sometimes more difficult to negotiate at central level. And at the other extremes, when we do not succeed uh, on our own uh, right to convince government to let refugees access their territory, well, we use the big guns. And the big guns are our member states. We are a UN organization. We are an intergovernmental body. And our big guns are the U.S. government, are the British government, and so, and so, and so. And very often we do that when we feel that we will not have the strength on our own because just brandishing our little blue book is not strong enough in arguments. Well, we go to see the ambassadors, we talk to foreign ministries, and we say, you have to help us put pressure on these countries to have obtain some humanitarian space for refugees. So that's how we deal with the key tenets of non-deportation when people show up at the border and have a cause for protection. But there are more subtle aspects to protection it is identifying among a refugee flow who are the vulnerable groups it can be women who have lost their husband and have a whole series of children to look after in societies where women alone are not necessarily uh, given a fair a fair chance it may be an accompanied minor it may be ethnic or religious minorities within a group that is going to be uh, further discriminated so we have to identify this particular group and make sure they will be given particular attention in, in a refugee uh, setup. It is by developing community outreach, working with leaders, but also with women representatives, with representatives of youth, etc., that you understand the dynamics in a refugee camp and where you can have interventions that are tailored to the needs of refugees. So a lot of field work and outreach to individuals. Protection is not something that is very legalistic in our field operation. It's something that is very much a question of contact with communities. And, of course, as we work in a Fairly um, imperfect situation in refugee situation. This outreach sometimes gives good results. Sometimes is not enough. You know, it's something that we always have to question ourselves: on how far have we delivered? Uh, have we identified all the problems? Have we responded ad- adequately? Uh, Etc. In Syria right now, part of the protection work, for example, is to run safe houses for women who have been trafficked, sometimes by their families for money. And of course, these people are not easy to identify, but when you, when you identify them, you have to protect them from their own communities. And the running of safe houses is something that requires a little bit of a structure and a little bit of uh, training of your staff on confidentiality, on, on secrecy almost. So we, we have to respond to the needs of refugees in very different ways and sometimes improvise because we find something that we have never thought about uh, before. But again, these need to be field-based and to be close to the Communities in the field is, is one fundamental way in which we, we work, and we deliver this uh, protection now durable solution is trying to negotiate with government a solution to the status of these persons as refugees. make sure they will not stay refugees too long uh, and Since the fifty years my agency has been operating, we have only found three durable solutions, and uh, if someone has a fourth one, we are taker. I can tell you because uh, uh, bec- because they come with difficulties. The first one, of course, which is the solution that is available to the majority of refugees, is to go back home once the conditions that had determined their exit have changed, either change of government or whatever it is uh, that, uh, uh, that gives us guarantees that persecution will not be uh, uh, a risk for these people anymore. Return, in this case, has to be voluntary, and we do ch- programs the voluntariness of every individual to make sure that they're not pushed back by an asylum country who is fed up to have refugees for too long, that they're not pushed back by their own politicians who for some political gain want to try to organize return movements, etc. So we have to check that the decision to go back of each individual refugee is, is uh, taken without pressure, and we ask them to sign papers or to put their their finger when we organize these return movements. The second solution, which unfortunately does not occur very often, is that of local settlement, is to try to convince the countries where refugees to give them citizenship if possible and to allow them to establish themselves in the country. Now, very few countries like to do that because they feel that if they do this for a small refugee group this will play a sort of pull factor in that many more people will come and try to benefit from this, uh, from this situation. So we have some few examples. Uh, Mexico did uh, give uh, citizenship to 20,000 Guatemalans when I was a representative down there, and it's something that we had negotiated uh, uh, essentially base a very good personal relationship and interaction with some key key ministers where you had to show them that this would not be treated, that there were conditions in Guatemala that would not create a pull factor that we would not uh, in any way support any pull factor uh, by giving refugee status for people who would try to take advantage just of the possibility to be given mexican citizenship the whole fairly complicated negotiations citizenship to 150,000 Burundians, so quite quite an exceptional uh, measure. But these are, we, we cite these examples because I can count them on one hand, and that's what is f- easy for me to remember them. Not many countries want to do that. And the third solution is resettlement. This is a program to which uh, our relationship with the U.S. Uh, uh, is is particularly uh, in, in this relation is particularly close. Resettlement is a uh, discretionary program that some governments have they accept refugees we submit from refugee camps across the world for permanent settlement in the U.S. leading to citizenship. And this is discretionary in that there is no international treaty that says that the U.S. or the U.K. or this country should do that. It's purely a voluntary program. The U.S., being a big immigration country, has decided to take a slot in the quotas of immigration to give to refugees, and it's a very generous quota. We submit about 100,000 refugees every year to the U.S., and the U.S. accepts about 80 percent of our submissions, a pretty good rate of acceptance. They are free to accept or reject the submission. Of course, we know the criteria they're going to use, so we try to be as smart as we can in making these submissions, but 80 80 percent is a good rate of uh, acceptance. And um, these refugees come here. They are helped here by NGOs with funding for the first uh, few months from the Department of Health. And we value this program because it, unlike programs from other countries which tend to be much smaller in size, it is a program that is based uniquely on need. The US will not tell us we want IT technicians or we want people who speak English or we want people who are going to uh, adjust easily to Dallas or something like that. They say, which are the people you need to get out of the camps because they remain most vulnerable in the camps. And this is for us a tremendous instrument of protection because it allows us to offer a solution to those people who, despite the efforts we make in the camps to help them, remain particularly vulnerable. And we're very grateful that the country does offer this possibility. So it's about 1% of all the refugees we deal with every year, so it's not a solution for many, but it's a solution for the most needy. And it's a very, very valuable program in which our cooperation is very open, very transparent. Now, for those who are worried, who are these people, how did they come here, I have an American colleague in my office in Washington that deals particularly with resettlement and our relationship with the U.S., and he tells me the controls for the people who are checked by State Department, by DHS, etc., before they're admitted in the US are far more complicated than the feeling of uh, IRS uh, return formularies, so I think it's a pretty sophisticated work that is, being, that is being carried out. So these are the three solutions. Needless to say, that re- uh, repatriation remaining the solution for the very large majority, that solution, in some circumstances, take many years to occur, and we have among the ten and a half million refugees we take care of right now, almost six million who have been refugees in camp for more than five years, and uh, about 30 percent who have been there for over 20 years. So these are you, what you have is second generation who are born in camps, etc., because the conditions in their countries do not change, because they do not qualify for resettlement, and because of the countries do not want to give them the possibility of settling locally. So over the years, we had, between the protection work and between the durable solution, we have to provide some sort of assistance. And my organization, which initially was created without a single dollar of budget, saying you are there to negotiate with governments, which is still what we predominantly do, has been, over the years, called upon to deliver assistance program. We do that in partnership, mostly with non-governmental organizations, a large number of whom are based in the U.S., the big ones like uh, the IRC, World Vision, uh, Save the Children, Care, etc. We work with all these agencies in, in the field to deliver specific you know, health, water, sanitation, nutrition for children, uh, shelter. And when we can, because these are the basic rights, when we can, we try to address needs of education, at least primary education, make sure that the children don't lose out on the very basic of learning how to read and write and count. When you come to secondary education or to tertiary education, we don't have the resources, and very few refugees in the camps benefit from that. And this is one of the big drama, is how do you restore hope? One thing is to give people shelter to make sure they're not deported, to make sure they're fed, that they are treated if they are sick. All these are very basic things. But if you start staying year year and year after year in refugee camps, how do you restore some hope? The only way to do it is through education, through livelihood programs, through some sort of training where people can start thinking that this is something we can think of for the future. And unfortunately, when you run a permanent deficit between the budget you would like to be able to run and the income you are able to muster, these are the programs that will have to be relegated as second priority. And it's one of the drama because this is where we fail to give this uh, element of hope to 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 our refugees and particularly to the to the young generation. Young generations that will be the target of the bad guys. Most camps are close to the borders, which means they're not very far from the areas they have fled. In there, these areas, you have militias, you have uh, all kind of groups that will try to recruit children. And the more you have a child who is unoccupied or a young teenager who is unoccupied in a camp, the more the risk of recruitment will increase, particularly if it's uh, uh, supported by offers of uh, some sort of remuneration, etc. And one big part of our protection work is to try to identify these attempts and to negotiate with local security forces control over these attempts to make sure that children are not recruited. But you will see there have been in the press now some comments about Somalia, but a few years ago it, was a, it, it moves, but you have this sort of problem on a regular basis, and it's a key element of protection for us. Someone will have to tell. Um, so, these are the main the, 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 the main activities uh, of my uh, of my organization. The challenges we face now are getting more difficult to to resolve. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that in the time of the Cold War, it was quite simple because the conflicts were ideological and when Government was changing, the system was changing, return was possible. Usually reconciliation processes were not too difficult, and usually countries where people had to return had not been devastated. The conflicts we uh, we experience today uh, involve a large number of extremely irregular groups who are totally um, unreachable through international negotiation mechanism. If you take the Lord Army, Northern Uganda, uh, some, of the, some of the Taliban, or some of the groups operating in Somalia, there is no way you can reach out to them to try to promote a peace process, to try to negotiate returns, etc. These are people who are totally inaccessible by traditional diplomatic means. This was not the case in the, in the more predictable world uh, before. These are also groups that tend to um, fight on uh, what appears to be ethnic or religious <coughs> um, uh, frameworks, if you scratch, you will very f- often find that there are solid economical reasons behind that. But the fact that the conflict is framed into ethnic or religious uh, nature makes reconciliation process at the end of the conflict much more difficult, and therefore the repatriation a much more challenging exercise for us. And at the same time, the destruction that has been. Uh, uh, vested on the countries of origin is thorough. I mean, returning to Afghanistan, returning to Southern Sudan, uh, returning to some part of Iraq right now, returning to Somalia is returning to zero. There is nothing. All services have been completely destroyed. And, of course, development agencies are slow to move back into these countries. So even when we repatriate refugees, we have a long program of support to make sure that the return is going to be what we call sustainable. That's something that people can can can, can live through. <coughs> uh, so that's one of our main challenges. At the same time, increasingly people don't flee beyond their borders. They, they don't become refugees according to the legal sense. They flee within their own countries. We call these IDPs, internal depl- displaced people in our own <coughs> jargon. And in order to reach them, it means we have to operate increasingly in areas of conflict. Now that has led to... Uh, uh, great difficulties for us because of course to help these people we need full access Uh, we also need full transparency in what we do vis-a-vis our donors and when you operate in conflict zones you expose your staff to tremendous risk and over the past 10 years what we have seen is very often humanitarian workers are becoming not the uh, accidental casualty of conflicts but the deliberate target of some of these armed groups who want to make sure that you are not going to have uh, foreign observers uh, in the areas of conflict, and that has restricted tremendously our ability to operate. In, in many countries right now, every time as a head of a, of a provincial office you decide to send a mission in the field, you have to weigh the risk you're exposing your staff to the benefit it's going to bring to your beneficiaries, and it's a sort of decision you have to take almost every day or every week, and it's, it's pretty taxing on our on our field people, but these are the conditions that are Evolving in in which we work, large areas of Colombia, of uh, Sudan, of Somalia, of Iraq, of Afghanistan, and of Pakistan are actually not accessible as it should be for the people who are suffering from displacement because of the the, the modern nature of conflict. So, pretty pretty tough challenges uh, ahead for us. I mentioned at the beginning the relationship we have the, <laughs> with the U.S. Well, we would not be op- able to operate without the support from the U.S. government, and I want to. Clarify one thing: is that the discussion, very often, that appear between the US and the UN over dues, etc., have nothing to do with agencies like, like mine. We we do have uh, very important support from the US, but it's based on voluntary contribution. The support to agencies like mine is not subject to the compulsory contribution member states have to make to the secretariat. And every year we have to defend our budget with our donors, and they are absolutely free to fund it or not to. To fund it. the u s is our largest funder by by and large funds about twenty five to thirty percent of our budget, as I said, it has a tremendous resettlement program which was which we work completely transparently, but it also provides tremendous political support uh, in the field. And regularly, our colleagues in State Department, when they feel we have some difficulties in some countries, will themselves go on mission, talk to the ambassador and tell them, can you please make sure you will sort of generate an international community movement in that country to put the sort of pressure on this government to make sure that UNHCR is a better working environment in which to to operate. Now, this is gold for us. I mean, without that, we would not be able to, to operate. So I would want to reassure people that the U.N. and the U.S. can have a very constructive uh, relation. I am convinced that without the support of the U.S., our work would would be limited to uh, almost nothing. And it's uh, it's a vital relationship we have, and that's why it's always my pleasure to address uh, American public when I talk about our challenges. I think I should stop here. And uh, Jim, perhaps, if you want to. Thank you very much. Uh, As it relates to your third initiative, in terms of what I I guess I understood to be uh, granting citizenship in the United States for displaced persons, if you will, Mm -hmm. Uh, as in the last 20 years or so, if, if you look at the total number of people that have applied for that worldwide, what percent would you say the U.S. accepts versus the rest of the world? Well, currently, the US takes about 75% of those refugees we submit for resettlement. And then you have Australia about 8%, Canada about 8%, and European countries about 8%. We are trying now to get more take on by the Europeans in particular. And we are trying by uh, what we call emerging countries like Brazil, um, uh, Argentina, and Chile have taken small numbers, 300 each, uh, last year. But it was a beginning. Uh, We had tried that with some African countries, but it didn't work. They didn't have the conditions to make it work. But certainly with some uh, countries in Latin America, we can make some some progress. The the U.S. program has evolved by steps. It it started in the uh, mid-60s and early 70s, basically with uh, refugees from the Eastern Bloc and many uh, Jewish refugees who were victims of pogroms and all that. It then moved in the late 70s onto the famous boat people and the whole Indochinese chinese crisis. And it is with the passing of the uh, Refugee Act in 1980, which was promoted by late Senator Kennedy, that the whole system became global and that the U.S. started looking at uh, refugees worldwide uh, and, and have increased the numbers from 30,000, 40,000, etc., to a slight low of 50,000, 60,000 a few years ago and now has told us they were prepared to uh, increase Again, the, uh, the intake. As I say, it's purely discretionary. If The country tells us we don't want, we, we cannot put any, any pressure. Of course, Australia, Canada, and the U.S., being immigration countries that have immigration quotas, it's easier for them to uh, take a portion of that quota for refugees. It's generous in making the conditions not at all those that are required from immigrants that allows us to submit, as I said, the most vulnerable case. But what percentage over 50 years, I wouldn't be able to, to say. is just increasing right now. That's what I can say. Thank you. Um, of the 80,000 refugees that the U.S. admits every year, can you give like, a rough breakdown by nationality of who those people are? Yeah, The exact breakdown, I would have to look at my papers. But right now, for example, in, in the past two years, the largest groups are Iraqis uh, many of whom, of course, have been particularly targeted in Iraq because of their association either to the multi- multinational forces, to some contractors, or to uh, international press, for example. So therefore, their association with the West has set them up as particular target and, or some of the religious minorities. And uh, the U.S. has recognized that they had to include this as one of their priority. There uh, are two other groups that are very important now and for the years to come. Uh, and that are particularly interesting because they go beyond the strict protection uh, element. It's the Bhutanese from Nepal and the Burmese, or the Myanmarese, as the Myanmar would like to call them, uh, who are in, uh, in Thailand. Now, these two groups are part of the very protracted situation. These people have been in refugee camps for second generation right now, the chances to go back home is almost zero, and to settle locally is zero. And if we do not find countries who are prepared to help us offload this population from the camps and give them them a durable solution, they will be there probably for the next 20 years. And there the U.S. has made a commitment to say we are going to take about 80% of the population of refugees in these camps over the next five or six years. So it's going to be a scheduled uh, program, but for us, it shows that it's is going to basically allow us to close these programs in, in due course. And by doing that, it has led these countries to say, okay, we might be able to settle the remaining groups and therefore to promote a bit of a, uh, of a rebound effect, if you want. In the case of Iraqis, the, the resettlement program of the U.S. has helped us a lot also in helping those that will not be resettled. At the beginning of the situation in Syria and Jordan, Of course, these two countries that are fairly small countries in terms of population, faced with a huge number of refugees, were pretty tough. You know, they would put people in jail, try to close the border, try to send them back, etc. The moment the U.S. started resettling, we have earned some space, and detention has stopped, deportation has stopped, even visas have been uh, reconducted, etc. So it, it allowed us to negotiate a better deal for those refugees who will never be resettled because they will never fit within the criteria we have. So there are... Uh, secondary uh, effects to the program of resettlement that make our job much easier, and of course, the life of refugees who stay in these countries uh, uh, more um, more easy to to bear. Is there any relevance to what you do? Is there any relevance to Mexico for what you're doing and with the violence that's incurred occurring there? Uh, no, not directly. In Mexico, we, have, we, we used to have a big programs at the time of the uh, refugees from Central America, but right now we have a very small program. Mexico has signed the convention, so what we deal I- with in Mexico is helping Mexico deal with people who arrive in Mexico and submit an asylum claim in Mexico, and we help them with training, etc. The general violence in Mexico is, is drug-related. It has nothing to do really with us. Only in perhaps one little aspect, there has been discussion, this is very legalistic discussion we have here with DHS and with some people on Congress, and through some amicus brief we provide to some of the courts that there are some cases when people who try to escape gang violence because they don't want to be um, uh, recruited by gangs and can by their country, we believe that in some cases, I'm not saying this at all, but in some cases, this would qualify uh, 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 for refugee status uh, determination. And this is something we are working out uh, very, very closely with with different legal instances in the U.S. But this would be the sort of connection we have with the violence in Mexico. It cannot, uh, uh, we cannot look at the broader issue. Unfortunately, it's totally uh, beyond our, our mandate. Uh, if I understood understood your math correctly, you say that eighty thousand eighty thousand people U.S. took represented what one percent of the people you deal with yeah. in a year. Is that eight million people you're dealing with each year? And so with twenty five percent, we're only resettling three hundred and twenty thousand four percent of them each year. Is that? Am I doing the math right? No, we we have. T- the figure varies all the time because people, yeah, but more or less, let's say around 10 million refugees oh, okay. uh, we take care of at present in the world. And our capacity to resettle, given the quotas that are given by different countries, including the US, is about 100,000. So 100,000 out of 10 million is 1%, no? It's 1%. So that's the proportion of refugees who are given a durable solution in a Western country where, you know, life can start looking. Uh, uh, bright, and that's why we want to give it to the, to, to the most needy ones. What are the parameters you use to define who are the most needy? <coughs> we, we have a whole set of, first, governments who offer resettlement will tell us what they are prepared to consider. And some countries will have pretty stringent ones, say people who speak English or people who have a secondary education, you know, and that, but these are countries who take very small numbers. The U.S. is really telling us it's who you think is in the most need. So we will identify people who, in camps, cannot survive in the conditions that we we can manage in the camps. So that would include um, uh, women heads of households uh, who have no support whatsoever, would include people who have been victims of torture, people for whom we know that return will never be possible. There are some minority groups from Iraq, for example, where any prospect of return. It's not a question to say, I wait two years or three years or four years. You know, it's never going to be possible, so we put them as uh, priorities. People with families in the U.S., of course. That is one criteria the U.S. gives us because, of course, they facilitate family reunion, which is, which is legitimate. And then there are sl- slightly a uh, whole uh, scale of, of, uh, of criteria, and we try to apply them as strictly as possible, and the U.S., when we make our submissions, try to revise them as strictly as possible uh, to make sure we... Uh, we remain uh, on target. Now, of course, I- I- is the system absolutely fair? No, because we have identified now that the people who fit our criteria that we should resettle is 200,000. So it's 2%. This, if we apply our criteria today, we would need to resettle 200,000 people this year, and we have 100,000 slots. How we make the difference between the 200 and the 100, this is very much based on interviews and, and, and the, the chemistry that goes in interviews because the criteria are the same. So you try to look at how long have they been in the camp and things like that. But it's not, it's, it's not an exact science. Do you see the refugee population growing as the world population grows? The refugee population is not really growing. It grew a little bit in the past year because of the Iraqis mostly. What is growing is the uh, number of people who are displaced within their borders. And the, the situation we, we, we have now has changed completely because what conflicts tend to ooze across borders. You have situations at one point where um, it's better to, be, to remain in your country but outside your home than to go to the neighboring country where the, where the conflict has reached. We have that between Sudan and Chad. We have that between Pakistan and Afghanistan, where people go back, but they don't go back home. They go back into a situation of displacement in their own country, so in a refugee-like situation in their own country. So what we have seen over the past years is the number of these internally displaced people is swelling. And as I said, they're much more difficult to reach because they tend to, to be in zones that are affected by, by conflict what we're seeing in terms of the change in demography is where refugees are. In the past, refugees were in camps. One, because governments wanted to keep them in camps and would not want us to help people who were in cities. And um, two, because it was a way to keep them close to uh, to the borders, She's in places where they're not really seen and they are less of a political problem for for, for governments vis-à-vis their own uh, population. Um, now, camps have one advantage and one disadvantage. The advantage is that you have a capital population, and to organize a relief effort is much easier. You give the food there, you put the schools there, etc. cetera. Um, but they create a phenomenon of dependency, which, if the situation lasts long, is not good, because people in a camp cannot become self-sufficient. You, you cannot create a whole artificial economy uh, around a camp. What we see now is an increasing urbanization of refugees. We have more and more refugees who live in cities and more and more governments who accept them to live in cities because the world is be- becoming an urbanized world. And that for us creates a challenge with how do you reach people in a city? You've got to work through municipal services, etc. and how do you give benefits to refugees and not to the local population? That, so if you are in, you know, in Calcutta or in places, uh, in, in big cities that have a, a high proportion of very poor people, we cannot be the solution for poverty in the world. And how do you help refugees in, an, in a poor urban environment is becoming perhaps one of the key challenges we'll have to address in the, in, in the coming years. Now, in some places we try to be creative, for example, with the um, Iraqis in Syria uh, who live basically in the slums of, uh, of Damascus or Aleppo, Uh, we have found that a much easier way to deliver assistance instead of having counters where we register people and a lot of people distribute and you distribute standard packages which are not necessarily what people need, we have created a credit card system and we manage a credit card uh, account for all the vulnerable population. They don't have to come to us. We can check their account, replenish when it needs to be replenished, uh, make sure that you do not have your... um, uh, uh, receipts on, on on their accounts, etc. Uh, but it's it's a very convenient way to help people by giving a bit more dignity because then they're responsible for their own management rather than coming and get something that you you, you hand out. But this is possible with Iraqis because they are an urban population. They are used somehow to let's say modern ways. It's not necessarily possible with with, with people who come from a more uh, uh, f- from a different sort of uh, of culture. We have time for two more questions. Thank you, this is a fairly specific question. I work in South Sudan and there's a UNHCR outpost there. And the area where we are is quite stable and things are getting better. But with the upcoming election, both this Sunday and next January, everyone is kind of waiting to see what will happen. And so are you all keeping people in your post there and ready, sort of expecting things to get worse and for refugees to return? We are having all kind of contingencies. Uh, some for the best and some for the worst, which may well be what happens, uh, including uh, new exits in Kenya, and Uganda, and Ethiopia, etc. So, uh, and to be honest, the divisions within the South Sudanese that we have observed <coughs> recently are even more a factor of uh, of preoccupation because obviously uh, Khartoum is likely to be behind that, or at least to be pleased with these uh, with these divisions. So we're looking at that yes, with some angst. I think right now, our biggest problem in, in Sudan is not Darfur anymore. Darfur is far from being solved. Is what will happen with, with the South. And just to show that we take this seriously, a representative in Khartoum is coming next week and we're having all kind of discussion at State Department, and with the Hill, etc. So there is interest My question is, uh, how many refugees uh, from Bosnia, uh, Kosovo, and Kraina are in the United States? As you said uh, in your speech, uh, these people are not here because they came to better their life. They are here because they're friends of the United States and they fear for their life and they came to save their heads, to, to save themselves. The second question is, is there any plan to give these refugees citizenship mm-hmm. because of the current situation? Their countries do not exist anymore. They, there is no place for them to go back. So uh, is there any plan to give them citizenship? so that uh, uh, they can stay here and have a normal life. The numbers I don't know. I would have to check, and it's something I can, I can convey back to you. But I, I don't have them in mind, so I, I cannot answer that. I'm sorry. As for citizenship, I think it depends how they came here. Those who were resettled through this program we have with the State Department will or should have gotten by now the citizenship or will get it soon. It depends when they arrived, etc. Those who came on their own and have benefited from uh, you know, temporary protection status or, or all different other re- arrangements to uh, stay in the U.S. legally but not under refugee status, this is much more difficult because the government does not like to uh, give citizenship to people who came under a mechanism that offers what we call temporary protection. You know, There are different ways to call that, but the protection for a limited amount of time until people can go back if they don't strictly qualify uh, as refugees. And, you know, as much as I understand it, for some of them, the future looks rather um, uh, bleak or, or certainly not, not, not clear. Um, it's very difficult. You cannot put conditions on government who initially has made an offer to find an alternative way of protecting people who might not at the time have qualified under the refugee definition but certainly could not be sent back. So you have to preserve that sort of space. And when we ask governments to give temporary protection status to people, they always tell us, yes, you are very good at asking to give temporary status, but you never come and say, now you can stop the temporary protection. So the temporary protection status becomes a sort of uh, uh, permanent status, and it, it weakens a little bit our ability to use the same argument for a new group of people who might warrant the same attention. On the numbers, I'll come back to you, madam, because I, I just... And Lori Fihan, you had a, a comment? Oh. Or a question? I, I just... I think it might be of interest to people, um, also, Michelle, for you to comment about what you've been asked to do in Haiti, even though that's really not normally a function of UNHCR. Um, sort of under their protection um, mandate, what you what you're doing there? Well, uh, the High Commissioner at our last Executive Committee, which our annual board meeting, if you want, with our with our, our, our member states, uh, has offered to become the agency leading the protection response in all kinds of disasters, man-made or natural. There was little enthusiasm from our donors because they say, well, that may, will probably mean a bill that goes up and may mean also that UNHCR would divert resources that it has in insufficient quantity for refugees for people who have suffered from floods or earthquakes, etc. So we don't have a mandate for natural disaster. In the case of Haiti, because of the scale of the disaster and the fact that it destroyed the the capital, which is where usually a relief effort is being uh, constructed, uh, we were asked by the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Haiti and by the resident coordinator of the UN system in the Dominican Republic to help with the protection issues uh, arising from the... um, uh, the earthquake. Uh, so we are there in support to other agencies and not as a lead agency on our own right. Now, the issues we're looking at is uh, essentially the, uh, the problem of vulnerable groups, certainly uh, unaccompanied children, and I don't use the word orphans deliberately because we don't know whether they are orphans or no, but there are lots of children in the streets that y- we don't know where their caretakers or parents are, uh, women. Uh, that have lost uh, 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 male members and are particularly vulnerable in a society that has a uh, history of violence against uh, against women. Uh, old people, uh, people with uh, physical disparities, which in the scramble for reaching assistance that is progressively being built up for these people, but in the first weeks was certainly not enough for, for all of them, uh, these people were particularly vulnerable. So we are trying to make sure that all those other agencies responsible for particular sectors, shelter or food distribution or camp management, etc., to make sure that vulnerable groups are being considered in the way the relief is being delivered. You probably saw on some of the early footage we had uh, on, on, our, on our TV screens that the initial food distribution you had a truck coming and just putting out 100 kilos uh, bags of wheat in the hands of an old lady I can tell you, ten meters after, the the hooligans were taking the food from her, and she had no chance to benefit from that. But that's not the way you can you can distribute food now. Of course, in the first day it was difficult to do that well, but now we have to do it better. We have to find ways to uh, uh, identify safe heavens for these children. For at least the time will be necessary to try to identify. Possible caretakers from extended families, or whether the parents are somewhere, and if not, at one point eventually discuss adoption, etc. But try to fight what is happening right now, which is a scramble for children by all kind of very unpleasant groups. And we have seen—I have personally seen—cases trying to get children out of hospitals, etc., uh, who are on their own. So th- these are these are some some of the tough issues. The second one, the second major issue we have is that. Be- because most of the housing has been destroyed in uh, Port-au-Prince, particularly the, the sort of uh, not the poorest and not the most wealthy of the population. The poorest, they live the cardboard, so they got the cardboard on the head, and they didn't suffer too much. Wealthy, their houses stayed up. It's all the other neighborhoods that are completely down, about 70% of the city. So these people have moved, of course, out of, their, of the ruins and have created spontaneous settlements all around whatever little space they find in the city, uh, marketplace, uh, a, a park, the streets, wherever. Uh, the golf clubs, in, in, so, in some instances. etc. Some of these areas are highly exposed to the rains that are coming up in, in a couple of weeks. And there, the, some of these areas will just be washed out. And if they're not washed out, they will be so flooded that the risk of epidemics we, is going to rise tremendously. These people need to be relocated. Now, we have principles on relocation that it has to be voluntary that people need to be given some alternatives that uh, again the vulnerable people need to be given particular consideration on how they will be transported etc that there is a reception mechanism in the place where they are relocated etc now because of the pressure of time and the fact that you will probably have to run a certain uh, strong arm element in the relocation if you want it to take place uh, we have to make sure that some of our protection concerns are, are respected it's it's a, it's a tough negotiation to find what is the right compromise with authorities who don't want to have a disaster on their hand but who don't want to have a right on their hand at the same time if they uh, uh, brutalize the people. It's a very fine line to uh, to thread. And the third thing we're trying in the, Dominic- the Dominican Republic has been very nice to Haitians. They have allowed a lot of medical uh, evacuations. So you have lots of children, children, uh, young kids, uh, women alone, that were flown there by helicopter, we don't know whether their families are alive or no, we don't, so we don't want them to be returned immediately, and we are negotiating with the Dominican's protocols, not to say they should keep them all uh, forever, but to allow us to negotiate the return once we have found a solution for each of these groups, and that, that is really case working, and it takes time, so we're trying to work on these issues. But the big relief in the hands of the rest of the UN is not something that is in, in our hands. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks. You. <laughs> For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.